Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Paul Hurley. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Henry. Pleasure to be with you. We are glad to have you. Uh, Paul is an entrepreneur. Uh, He's made viral videos, at least that's what he does these days, viral videos that have been shared millions of times all over the world. We're going to talk about that. He's a former Yahoo and Sky TV executive. Uh, Paul launched Handface, that's the name of his current company, in 2010 to help companies large and small cut through the clutter of the online world by making videos that are watched, liked, and shared organically. He recently published his first book on the subject of viral videos, which is called Viral, the Social Video Handbook. And so in today's episode, Paul is going to share with us his entrepreneurial journey, uh, video content marketing for small business owners, and I'm going to dive into the topic of creativity with him and just other general tips and advice for small business owners. He lives in Sussex, which is about an hour south of London. And so once again, Paul Hurley, welcome to the show. Hi, Henry. Great to be here. Pleasure to have you, Paul. Uh, so let's let's start at the beginning of We Would. And uh, education-wise, I believe you got your bachelor's from the University of Kent and then a master's in French cinema. What does one do with a uh, master's in French cinema, if you don't mind my asking? I don't mind you asking because everybody <laughs> asked me that when I was I doing it at the time. Um, in the, <laughs> including mid- your parents, 90s. I suspect. And you know, yeah, including my parents. But you know what the funny thing about that? I did that because it was a passion. Uh, I got a scholarship to do that at the University of Warwick in England. I did think, who, what, 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 what practical use is this going to be, for instance, in the jobs market? However, after uh, a number of interviews, I got a really well uh, respected, and, and even though I was young at the time, I was probably 23, 24, so we're talking about 20 years ago, I got a great research job in television purely because the person who was interviewing me loved the fact that I had done a <laughs> master's degree in French cinema. So there you go. Proof proof positive. I'm sure you immediately told all of the doubters. See, told you. Well, there you go. I do think there is a lesson that, you know, the arts in, in this country and in Europe a little bit are getting squeezed at university and humanities, but they do have uh, a value. And if you are interested in something, I mean, I was very lucky to get a scholarship, which which paid for it. So I was lucky to get that. But I think if you can follow that path and you are passionate about it, go for it. Yeah, that's fantastic. But so what did you think back when you were in university that you would end up doing? What were your thoughts career wise? What were you thinking back then? I wasn't really one of those people who had a fixed career uh, plan. I must confess, I didn't have uh, excuse me, a sort of doctor lawyer uh, thing in my head. I didn't really know. I was just, it was, I just loved being, I remember going to university, being, my eyes completely open, loving it, then going on to do a master's degree. So I was into the arts, I was into drama and theatre. I knew I was passionate about film. 
I guess I thought something to do with the moving image. And I guess that 20 years later, yes, that is what has happened. Yeah, that's, that's right. Interesting. Uh, never would have thought it would have evolved to this because this doesn't ex didn't exist back then. But that's an interesting connection. So then after university, you've got you got this research position. And then how long did that go? What, what happened next career wise? Yeah. That was a pretty interesting gig in the mid-90s working for the early days of interactive television when, um, I mean, that's a sort of, you know, now we have smart televisions so we can sort of um, deal with them on that basis. But back then that was creating games based around existing television programs on the BBC over here. I did that for about three or four years. Then I landed a nice position at Sky Television, as you mentioned, in the UK. And that was a real... <clears throat> you know, a great time because I was uh, eventually became head of programming for their pay-per-view box office service. This now we're talking about the end of the 90s. And that was in some ways a forerunner of Amazon or Apple TV or a streaming service that I mean Netflix rather than and Amazon, a streaming service that we have now. So I was running 64 channels of movies, buying the movies from companies and independent uh, distributors, marketing them, scheduling them and I did that for three years and I absolutely loved it um, even though Sky doesn't always have the best you know PR because it's part of the Murdoch Empire it was at that time for me a great place to work it really fostered creativity and fostered people in terms of promotion I really enjoyed that then we go briefly to 2001 when if you cast your mind back we're just at the end of what was seen as the first uh, wave of the dot-com businesses, um, and my direct boss and myself were whisked away from Sky to go and work for Yahoo. And if I learned one thing from Yahoo then in 2001, I mean, it was a huge company, arguably still is, I could have foreseen what's recently happened. I mean, Yahoo's been bought by um, is it Verizon in the States for, for a fraction of what it was once worth. It was a puzzling place to work. Uh, it was an enormous, uh, you know, ship, enormous container ship that was very, very difficult to to, to turn or to change direction. Um, full of silos of independent people working independently. A very strange place to work then. So I really didn't last there very long. I lasted there about a year. However, at this point, I was about thirty. I made a lot of connections doing that and the Sky business beforehand. And I spent about the next five to seven years working freelance in film distribution. So working for companies, helping them to choose, buy movies that, that would be shown in the UK, either on television, on DVD, or um, in the cinema. And then if mainly that was the DVD business. And I'm sure, pretty, pretty sure it's the same in the States, that DVD business more or less died. It, it, it still exists, but it more or less died. Um, so about 2008, 2009, I figured I need something new. And that then led into more specifically what, what, we are, what I am doing and what we are doing today. Okay, fantastic. Great journey. So if we go back to those days at Sky and at Yahoo, were there any inklings back then that you might want to do your own thing? Or was, which, were you getting enough out of that corporate environment at the time that that wasn't a thought? I was at Sky. I left because of, um, I guess, the promise in my mind that there would be great potential at Yahoo. I found that I was trapped in a classic corporate scenario. Um, when you have these 
beasts of organizations who have a, 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 an HQ in the States and you're working for a satellite around the world, so that could be in Japan or in Spain or in, in England in my case, you're very much a sort of uh, latecomer to the party. You're very much sort of second tier. The focus is on the, the HQ in, in, in the States. And I used to go there to Silicon Valley, um, to Yahoo. Uh, I used to fly over there. Um, I mean, everyone is perfectly nice, don't get me wrong, and everyone is great and friendly. But from a commercial point of view or from a personal point of view, it just wasn't very fulfilling. So, yeah, I think definitely by then... I, I was sort of thinking, I just don't want to have this corporate um, existence anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Because in that environment, then you were starting to really become focused on that disconnect. You were nowhere, you were nowhere physically near the real decision makers. And that started to really amplify itself. And, and as you were getting older, you feel like, wait a second, I, I want to have more control, especially over what I create and the impact that it has. So then you transition into this freelance period, which a lot of us will do that as entrepreneurs because it's not quite building a business, meaning building people around us and, and scaling something, but it is becoming your own boss, right? It is and isn't. Uh, I think that you're still beholden to whoever is employing you. You're hustling a lot, even though we're all hustling as small business people to an extent. As a freelancer, rather than saying I'm the MD of the company, you are beholden to the MD of whatever company you are working for. You are still a representative of them and have to sort of toe the line in terms of, you know, well, in terms of everything, really. So um, I did enjoy it and I worked with some great people, really learned a lot, but um, um, it wasn't quite the same as it is now. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great, great clarification. And so in 2008 is when you really create your own business and it becomes in what it is today, uh, which is the current business called Handface. So yeah. before we dive into that, I had read a quote somewhere in doing the research, a quote, I am fascinated by how, how and why we share content online, which is why I set up Handface video, end quote. So what, what is this fascination with the way people share content online? I guess it's just some uh, basic deep town thing for me in, in how we share it, what mechanisms we do. Um, you know, when we started sharing stuff online, Henry, going back 15, 20 years ago, we were all sharing it on email. Mm-hmm. And you would get... Uh, little things from your friends that would be little funny video, well, not even videos initially because there wasn't really a place to host them. It might be images or links to funny stories. Um, I think there was, a, you know, we've had a couple of, a few massive uh, turning points in the history of the internet in terms of sharing and in terms of content. Obviously, from, from my point of view, a major one was in 2005 when YouTube first appeared and immediately won the battle for the online video space and has never been uh, really challenged. There are other players in that market, and there were at the time a lot more players. Um, an extraordinary um, business career f- for YouTube. Um, and I just became interested in the psychology of how and why we share it. So we went from sharing uh, via email, which was a very private uh, way of sharing. So I would send something to you, Henry, because I knew you, I knew you would like, Henry will like this. Um, but then there's a double thing is, what is the fact that I'm sharing it, saying it about me? Um, what is Henry's perception of me because I am sharing this video? Does he see me as a person who is sharing uh, 
content on a certain subject or is it just going to be the same sort of sort of funny stuff or is it going to be intelligent stuff so there's a lot to do with perception then what happened was when the uh, in about 2000 and, I mean obviously Facebook had been around since about 2003 2004 when it really started to hit in about 2007 and 8 and then when Twitter really started to take off about three years later people were sharing much more publicly um, and I became interested in, in how we, we were sharing and, and why we were sharing it and what it says about ourselves. And then I suppose what really uh, got me into this was when I made, I was just making videos for me. And I think a lot of people who do this start off making, not quite in my bedroom, but that kind of metaphor, the bedroom artist. Um, when, the first, when I first had successes and I went from having videos with 10 views to a hundred thousand or four hundred thousand views seeing that happen it's it's almost it's it's an addictive thing it's fascinating i can only compare it to having a hit record i've never had a hit record but it's the kind of comparison i make um so having had a lot of videos that have been shared you know hundreds of thousands or millions in, in certain cases i've become really interested in the way it spreads and there's there's lots of other books written about viral uh, stuff on the internet and it kind of led to why I wrote the book specifically about um, viral video. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I don't want to jump ahead, but it touches no. so much on what what you were saying here has to do so much with the creative process. And the point you illustrated, when I used to email you a joke, then I was obviously subject to you deciding, is Henry funny or is he crass or whatever? But now when I put something out there on this broader platform, I'm so hyper-conscious of how I'm going to be perceived because this is my expression, whether it's something I think is funny I'm sharing or something I've created. But it's nonetheless, I'm putting my expression of what I might think is funny or politically correct or incorrect or whatever it might be. And so that judgment component of it is such a fascinating component of what what can make something popular, well-received, why we put it out there, how much we monitor what the reaction is to it, all of that is fascinating stuff, so I can see why it's become such a passion for you. It's absolutely fascinating. You're, you're bang on. And I tell you what's really fascinating is um, the next part of that game is what is happening now, is that people are starting to move back from Twitter. They are starting to move back from Facebook for the very reason that you said is because if they put stuff out that is, could be perceived as controversial or could be taken the wrong way, then they can have all sorts of issues with a backlash, with trolling. You know about this, and our, the audience will know about this. So if I send something privately to you, Henry, it might be, I don't know, something that's silly that, is, that we share a sense of humor about. But if I put it out in the wider world, people might misconstrue it because they don't know, oh, well, they don't know Paul, or they don't know Henry, they don't know the sense of humor. So we've seen plenty of examples of people having, you know, publicly shaming uh, incidents on, on Twitter and, and on, on Facebook. So what is happening, just as an addendum to what I said originally, is we are now reverting to more, much more private sharing than we were five years ago. And that private sharing is being done in small groups in places like WhatsApp, uh, Facebook Messenger, Kick is, is big for teenagers in the States. There, is, there are stats out there that are saying that 70% of what is being shared online is now being shared in these small groups. Interesting. 
Very that is, interesting. That is fascinating yeah. for, for businesses going forward. Exactly. And so let's segue into that, which is how how does a small business owner look at video content, whether it's video or live streaming, all of this that's emerging on the social media landscape? And how, how do we begin as small business owners to leverage that, use that in an effort to promote our business? What are your thoughts on that to start the conversation? Well, I think that... Um... I classify um, my clients into medium-sized businesses, large businesses. So large businesses would be companies that we work for, like Huffington Post, Virgin Media, Yahoo. These are companies with deep pockets. Medium-sized business might be, you know, 50 to 500 employees. They could maybe afford to spend 5,000 pounds, which is about the equivalent, given that the pound is tanking at the moment, of let's say $5,000. On, on video or, or even ten to twenty thousand dollars on a series of videos and <clears throat> that won't necessarily affect them too much now the but the, you know it, 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 in terms of spend now for a small business for a, a, a single person uh, business or, or, or just a you know a two-man band the idea of spending five thousand dollars on video I just think is is a massive ask it and yeah. I'm you know, nothing is certain. Nobody can uh, <clears throat> guarantee anything. I can't guarantee everything that my videos are going to do exactly what we hope they want to do. Um, I can do the, you know, there are processes, which I guess we'll talk about, that we can put into place. So what I've been actually really interested in, and this is very salient to me in the last three or four months, is talking to small businesses about how can we create a package for them that will help help them to learn about this space show some roi or show some return and take away the fear and the worry they have also about time now let's say you're a small business person who i don't know you might be an individual uh bespoke furniture maker you might spend 60 hours a week working away on on your actual job at the end of that you're exhausted how are you going to be an expert in Facebook marketing, in video marketing, in understanding how all of this works, let alone actually going out and doing it? So you have a lot of small businesses. They could be salon owners, coffee shop owners, restaurant owners who try this. And you'll get a very typical response from them say, oh, I tried Facebook marketing. It didn't work. And that's typically because they tried it once and they didn't do it right. So what I've been talking to businesses about in the last three or four months locally here to me, and there are a lot of assets online that you can, you can uh, find out about this, is how can we create, explain to them to create a marketing funnel that they will understand, that we can provide them with some initial assets, that they can go away and implement, measure it at a fee that is reasonable to them. Um, a fee that I think they should be looking at in terms of doing that, is somewhere around $750 to $1,000. And for that, you could be looking at getting two to three months targeted video uh, on Facebook, including a video, including some uh, bespoke language, and including some images. And we're currently working on a package here in the South England. And so far, we've had a very uh, positive response in terms of, of people being interested in that because I just think it's a really hard ask for small business owners to do this on top of everything else. No, absolutely. And when you say seven fifty to a thousand, you're talking about a one-time fee on a monthly basis for three months. Uh, clarify <coughs> that a bit for me. 
what I'm looking at is uh, that would be a one-time fee. Uh, I think it's probably uh, you get your three different assets. So you get your, your three images, you get your language for the campaign, you get a video. Now, the video is going to be 30 to 40 seconds. It's not going to be... Mm -hmm. um, but the video will be shot at your... Uh, you know, if if we're sh if we're making a live f film, it'll be shot at your place of work, and we'll work with you to work on the message. Um, and yes, to target your market online, find your market. I, I guess we'll talk a little bit later on about um, how we can how we can find that. It's it's massively important mm -hmm. to think about how you're going to find the audience online. Right. Um, but yeah, but for, but for that price point, that's very accessible to the vast yeah. majority of very small businesses. I think so. I mean, I've compared it to UK markets for taking out a one-page or half-page article in a reasonably uh, broadcast uh, newspaper or magazine. Um, so you, there might be like a, a well-respected state magazine or county magazine that you want to put an ad in. And I think you can expect to spend in the UK, around about 500 to 800 pounds. We'll, we'll say that's dollars as well. Um, and, and I think that there is a service there at uh, a profit to, you know, obviously to, to myself, a small profit, but I think if you can get enough people to do it, then the small profit becomes a large profit overall. Yeah. And I think once you've done that, companies can then start, small businesses can then start to think, okay, I understand now what a funnel is. I understand how I can put this uh, into action on Facebook. Maybe going forward, I could re-employ Handface or I could do this myself. And I want people to think, well, I could probably do this myself. So are you going to be able to deliver this service for clients worldwide or do they need to be within your region? How is that going to work? Well, uh, you've obviously um, just made me start thinking about that um, because right now I'm only working in, you know, this is something brand new to us. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. So we are working on it very locally. There is no reason why uh, where you are based, say you're based at somewhere in the States, that I could produce this with local content makers. So I could find, I could still negotiate with you and create your campaign on Skype. Uh, it, we could have Skype meetings. In terms of the filming, I can find, and I can find vetted good filmmakers who I can, I can find um, locally who could go and take the shots I need. They could send that to me. We can edit it here. We've done large projects for Canadian companies, for companies in San Francisco. It's so easy now to communicate that um, we've done larger projects, so there's no reason why we couldn't do smaller projects. That's a really um, interesting point, actually, that you've made. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic to think about. And, of course, technology allows that. And, of course, what you bring to the table then is this expertise on how to then craft these videos such that they are viral worthy. And we'll get into that in more detail. But more importantly, it's that strategy. Now, now what do I do with this content so that I can most effectively deploy it? And unlike the $1,000 I might spend, for example, in the shiny local magazine that I only get one run of, this is content that has quite a life to it, quite a shelf life to it. Ideally, you want to be thinking about creating content that has legs or has some evergreen aspect to it, yes. Yeah. Or that you could say, this is the version I've got now, but in three months I know I'm going to make this change to it, which is a small change, um, and I can rerun it. Yeah. 
beautiful. All right, you touched on Facebook, and Facebook, of course, is a hot topic, and I, I see a lot of my clients, including myself, doing more advertisement on Facebook than where I used to spend on AdWords. But tell me about video campaigns in specific and what you're seeing and what you're helping clients with and why they're becoming so effective or, or are very effective right now anyway. Well, they became incredibly effective uh, from the middle of last year, or the early part of last year, when Facebook installed a native uh, video player. So the feed that we have uh, on Facebook suddenly changed from having largely um, embedded YouTube links to seeing a lot of Facebook videos automatically play as you scroll down the feed. So you've got a massive billion person audience scrolling down their feeds, seeing their different uh, videos. Now, I'm sure you know as much or more about this as me if you're doing it for yourself, <clears throat> but I hope you're going into the uh, Power Editor or the Account Manager and looking at your targeting because I think that what uh, most companies, small companies and medium companies, fail to really consider is they really need to think about the targeting of the audience. Um, and I think you can you can make that fairly niche. You don't want to go too small, but you can really uh, create a bunch of uh, different types of audience. Um, you should be thinking about things like creating an ad grid, which might have five different avatars of five different potential um, customers or clients, and, and running maybe five different slightly tweaked campaigns and seeing whichever one, which one works best and then putting most of the spend into that. So if you're running a $50 a day campaign or a $25 a day campaign, you could split that five times, run five slightly different versions of an ad, maybe one which has text heavy, one which is picture heavy, or has different variations of text. See which one works. Um, think about time of day as well. All the different factors. Go into that power editor. Think about your audience and really spend some time on that once you've created the campaign really spend time on the nurturing of it and those statistics what do you think is that something that you're into yourself i am yeah so i, I think it's great advice it, it takes it takes some practice so what i usually yep. advise is start small start with a five dollar a day budget yeah so that your mistakes are not going to kill you and start to learn how to use the tool, get in there yeah. and learn how to use the tool. But like you said, right now, I don't know that there's another platform that allows the segmentation at a target audience level like what Facebook is providing right now. Absolutely. It's absolutely incredible. And, and you know, I had a client meeting today, and I won't say who they are or what business they're in, because other clients have said this to me, and they said to me, oh, but my our audience isn't on Facebook. Hmm, I know. <laughs> and and it, that requires some readjustment or education to them because everybody, more or less, is on, is you know, on Facebook. So, look, some people aren't on Facebook, that's fine. But most people, in, in, in some shape or form, are on Facebook. And <clears throat> I just think for, for me right now, um, in, with our larger business, we do a lot of stuff for broadcast um, TV channels over here. Um, we create Facebook videos for them. Um, it's just the place to be right now. And, yes. and, and really, if we're talking, you know, up to the minute stuff, Henry, you may have seen in the last few hours of the time of recording here that um, Twitter has announced it's closing Vine. Which Wait, I did not see that. No. Yeah, which was, you know, uh, pronounced to be one of the next great things when it launched in 2012 or 2013. So right. pl platforms are changing 
but Facebook's dominance, and I think part of it is that that incredible ability to go in, segment that audience, and create that audience. And as you are spot on, it takes practice. Um, but if you're into running a business and properly thinking about spreadsheets and you know the the numbers, it should be relatively interesting. I find it relatively interesting. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, if if that the whole concept of marketing and how to reach your audience and how to reach your customer doesn't interest you, then I don't know. You have you have to check yourself, perhaps, uh, to your point. So l let's talk a little bit more though than about content because for a couple different reasons. Obviously, it is the big challenge as we've talked about already for most business owners, either because we're paralyzed because I think, well, goodness, I couldn't create a video that's funny or or I wouldn't be able to create it professionally enough or I simply don't have the time or I don't know where to start, all of those barriers. But then also because that, that focus then, right now it might be Facebook, but we don't know what it's gonna be two years from now or even a year from now, but the content still will simply get deployed on another platform. So the content is the key component. You talk about, uh, I believe it's in a book or one of your online articles about the big five aims of online video. Could you speak to that as starting to give us a little bit more guidance on what we should look for when we're creating video content? Yes, um, I'll briefly talk about the big five aims, but I think one issue I see with small, medium and large companies is that they are too inward looking uh, in terms of their approach to content and their approach to marketing and by that I mean that a typical thing they might say to me is oh we do it this way or that's not how we we do it they see themselves because that's all they're doing every day they don't have that that ability to look outside in on themselves and think about how they might position themselves or market themselves so I think looking outside at yourself is, is sort of um, almost feels a bit metaphysical but it's an important exercise to be able to do I think another thing that um, companies really need to think about uh, in terms of creating content is, is getting help. And that's not just saying, oh, hire a third party agency to do it for you, but getting help in terms of be having somebody external to be able to bat ideas around with um, rather than just, you know, plowing, plowing a single line that, that may be doomed. I mean, there are other little tricks we, we could talk about as well. I'm very big on the, uh, the who uh, the where and the what, which is a formula I've, I've created that's very important um, at the start of a video process. But in terms of the big five, and this is obviously not all videos and not all companies are going to get every single one of them um, with every video or with every campaign, but it's basically um, a, a small big win is just a simple click through. So if somebody sees the video, clicks through to find out more information, then you could have somebody actually making a purchase because of seeing the video. Then on a bigger scale, when you think about branding, uh, the third big win is positioning so that you are positioned in the marketplace. Um, accompanying that, the fourth big win is um, increased recall so that when people are thinking about making that purchase, about, for instance, making that piece of, buying that piece of bespoke furniture, you're the guy they're gonna come to because they saw that video. And the fifth win, this is a great win is that if you can get a PR win, in other words, if you can have your video featured in a, in a third party magazine for free. So we love it when our videos are featured in national newspapers or on national television, our clients love it because it gives them a great feeling of, um, you know, validity and self-worth. Sure. Sure. All right. Great. Great insight. So then let's wrap it up on this subject with this question. Could you give me just a, a, a little glimpse or a, a brief example of how you've helped someone 
measure a return on investment on developing this type of content? I think that um, the PR stuff has been very uh, good for us. Um, I think uh, that seeing uh, videos or seeing campaigns mentioned in newspapers, as I said, um, I've seen, it, you, you've got to go back to figuring out what the reason for creating this, this project is in the first place. So we've done, for instance, a number of campaigns for charities where they've wanted to create, uh, raise five million pounds over five years and they've employed us as the ongoing video creator and we have helped to do that. Video is a part of a bigger picture. Um, we've helped an uh, apps company in San Francisco get round B funding um, with pitch videos. All, it's all about figuring out what the objective is and then um, seeing if you can help them make that as part of the bigger campaign and part of the bigger strategy. And I think with Facebook as well, you can see lots of stats, website conversions, you can see what people are doing. Right. Um, so there are measurable things there. Okay. All right. That makes sense. I, I, I think where I wasn't quite following you is if I get the PR, so if somebody does pick it up, a newspaper picks it up, my measure there would be what? Well, your measure, it's, it's a bit like uh, television advertising. It's hard. To, your measure is that you are now, your stature has increased, that you are now uh, a name, whether it be locally, nationally, or internationally, that you are now a person in this field of, if we go back to the furniture making or a shoe sell, selling, whatever it is your market is, that it gives you validity. The bigger the platform that gives you validity, the better it is for you. Yeah. Okay. I follow. All right. Handface, your current business. How did you come up with that name? Well, um, I sort of came up with the name i we go on holiday my wife uh, who at that time um wasn't my wife we were we go on holiday with uh, a couple of friends f not every year but but most years and in 2009 just before i set up i had been quite ill i still went on the holiday but i was sort of confined to bed for bed rest for most of it they were off out partying or doing whatever they were doing and they created a little uh sketch drawing of me using their thumb and index finger and if you now look on our website handface.co.uk that has became our logo <laughs> it's as simple as that there's no great depth that's it there's i thought it had it's something funny. to do with storytelling or no 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 it's, well there's the story there's the story there, well, there you go there you yeah. go. I love that. Love that. <laughs> so the idea, this was kind of, I guess, emerged or evolved as you were doing the freelancing work and then Handface in 2009 was the forming of your proper agency. Am I getting that right? Correct. And so the you'd had the idea for a while. I'm just trying to get a little bit more about the forming of the business, the launching of it. Was it just you when you first formed it? Yes, it was. And um, the very, the Briefish backstory was I, as I mentioned, I had been making this video, these videos myself, and in about two thousand and eight, I entered a competition that was uh, judged by a filmmaker called Michelle Gondry, who who directed uh, films like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with Jim Carrey. He's a sort of uh, mm. French French filmmaker who does stuff in Hollywood. And anyway, I made this. Uh, YouTube video that, that won this competition. Um, I won about five grand. I got sent to LA. I had a mentor. It was incredible the things that, that this uh, competition gave to me. And this video that I made 
went did go viral it had about you know half a million views in in the first week in the uk i was interviewed on the bbc i was interviewed in the new york times then suddenly out of the blue a record label called me said we have a new band they really love this video will you direct their pop video here's 20 pounds and i didn't even you know i'd never really thought about this even though i had made these little uh, films myself this was like a new step so i of course i said yes uh and from there, I did that. Uh, we talk about platforms um, and, and coming and going. That actually went to number one on a platform called Bebo, which was a social media platform that was really huge in Europe that completely disappeared in about 2010. So, you know, platform, you know, life isn't always uh, going to be eternal. So from, from that pop video, yeah, it, it just sort of spiraled from there. And initially it was just me. Now we're a small core team, but what we have is we have about um, 30 people uh, who are all really solid freelancers. So they could be mainly editors uh, and um, camera crew, etc. But you can't do anything without great writers, and we've got really great writers. So when the projects come in, we kind of figure out who's the most appropriate writer for this um, and assign the work to them. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. All right, so one of the quotes I read as it relates to the, the business online somewhere, quote, content that ignites, the, the thing is your, your focus is to create, quote, content that ignites the conversation, creates alpha audiences, rises above and rises above content shock, end quote. There's a lot said there in those three uh, phrases, if you will, but alpha audiences stood out to me. What is that? Alpha audiences are simply um, really strong followers, the top tier of your followers, the top 2%, the people who are raving uh, advocates for you. And the more you can uh, impress them and impress things upon them with all, all the ways in which you market to them, the better it will be because they will go out and spread the word for you basically for free. And you know, if they're going out and doing incredible peer-to-peer -peer recommending in places like WhatsApp, which we've talked about, then that is the value of that word of mouth is, is, is enormous. Okay, very, very interesting. And of course, then I have to believe that ties into this whole idea of going viral. And when I first read that on your website, that you make videos that go viral, I was, of course, immediately suspect. I said, wait a second, I, I don't know that you can know that you've created something that goes viral, just like you further then qualified you don't know that you've created a record that's going to be a hit you talked a little bit more about it in a great interview you did with paul kirch but talk to me about that this whole concept of creating something that potentially can go viral yes you've hit the nail on the head potentially is the really important thing uh, one of the uh, errors i see companies making is they they have this sometimes these uh, boardroom approaches of yeah let's make something that let's make a viral as if <laughs> as if it's as easy as having a number one hit record. It's not, but when you have a number one hit record, I imagine you've got a really good producer who's experienced, I imagine you've got a really good songwriter, I imagine you've got really good uh, musicians, session musicians, engineers, singers, um, all of the different people involved in making a, a hit record, they are there in, in terms of making uh, a video that might go viral. You have got to have great writers, great producers, editors, You've got to have a great idea and you've got to have a great way of getting into that idea. And as I mentioned earlier, the 
who, the, uh, where, and the what are really three key things to think about at the start. Who is going to watch your video? Where are they going to watch it? And what are they going to do when they've watched it? If you drill down into those three ideas, really drill down into those three uh, uh, questions, that will really help you at the start to figure out what the message uh, of this video should be. Yeah, and it also then ties back into how you're going to measure the success of it, the ROI of it. Exactly. And so what you've developed is a formula, and I don't say that in a negative way of that's not formulaic, but a formula for creating some content that has a good opportunity to become viral. Yeah, it's hard to, I have thought about working it out even almost as a sort of equation type thing in terms of a formula. It's not quite that easy, but I think that there are certain things you can add to it. The team, as I mentioned. Exactly. Um, the, the, the style of the video, um, there are certain certain things you can put into it. Um, and, uh, it's easy to spot when that goes wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it's not always uh, simple to explain why it goes right, but I think broadly speaking, especially now, you're going back to that quote about content shock, we are overwhelmed by content on an hourly, daily basis to cut through that, to make something that is really going to um, impress upon people. It's hard, so um, you know you need to have that a key. You need to have that key opening sequence. You know that first ten, fifteen seconds that makes people want to watch on. Yeah, great. Thanks for clarifying that, and that's what I was referring to with the formula. Not that you have a, a yeah. you know, but the, all of those components that you know are, are necessary. All right, let's segue back into and and the last major topic I wanted to dive into is the creative process. It's something as it does for you, that fascinates me as well. We touched on it at the outset. We talked about it from the perspective of that whole being uh, fascinated by what makes people share, why we share, our reaction to sharing. But I'm cur uh, curious as to your personal creative process and how you go about doing that. Let's say you're writing, let's say the book that you wrote. Share a little bit about that creative process. How do you go about creating? Writing a book is hard, undoubtedly the hardest thing I've done. Having said that, I really enjoyed it, and um, the joy of having it has made me start my second book, so I'm halfway through that because that's another little addictive thing. Um, I think, uh, look, I think everybody has got some creative ability within them. I think some people are scared because they uh, might be embarrassed about putting work out there, um, that other people are judging it. Um, for me... It's more or less trying to almost create it into a habit. So there are two key things that I do, which is I'm writing stuff down constantly. My uh, note section on my phone is just crammed of ideas which may or may not come to fruition. Some people take that to a, a further stage and maybe transfer those notes from their phone, write them down onto cards and flashcards and have them in a little wallet on their, on their desk. That's an interesting thing I've been thinking about recently. Um, the other thing I do in terms of creative from a video perspective is I try to make the first 20 to 30 minutes of my day looking at videos that are currently hot or doing well so that I can understand what the new trends are, if there's a new style, if there's a new format, something I haven't seen before. Um, it just kind of gets the juices, juices flowing, really. Um, I'm not one of those people who can just sit down and come up with brilliant ideas or, or hilarious uh, jokes all the time. They more often or not come in in those sort of, you know, 
moments when you're sort of in the flow or in the zone or, or often, you know, maybe even in the shower or something, thinking about something else. Um, but I do try, try and record them. So I don't have a prescriptive way of, of being creative, but I have some routines that, that help me. Ah, tremendous insights there. You've touched on two things that I want to dive into a little bit deeper. One is ties to my my strong belief on what the issue is for adults and when they say I'm not creative or they're not tapped into their creativity. And I'm curious as to how it was for you. But what I have found is what happens in our society, at least for most of us, certainly here in the States, is we're allowed to be creative when we're kids. So we get to color and we get to express ourselves in whichever way we do. But then we learn, we're indoctrinated, if you will, into stop doing that and behave and don't do anything that causes waves. And certainly don't put your, when we express something creatively, it is our most personal thing to an extent. And we put that out there. And the worst thing that can happen to us if we don't have, you know, the, the, the tough skin to deal with it or the confidence is it's a, it's a rejection, not just of what we've created, but of ourselves, of our expression. And I think that's how we then learn, unfortunately, therefore not to put anything out there to be judged, which ties back to the conversation about putting content out there uh, on social media. When you think back to your childhood, were you always what you would have called a creative child? And was that fostered? I'm just curious as to how that then uh, manifests itself into being a creative person today. I don't think I was necessarily wildly creative. Um you know, I don't think anybody would look back and say, oh, Paul was great. He was always drawing, always writing. I guess I liked, uh, I was interested in people. I guess my parents fostered an interest in, in people and how the world worked uh, for me. Um, and I was never really scared to talk about my ideas and exploring ideas. Um, and yeah, that's so interesting what you said is that it is the same in Europe. It's the Western world, isn't it? That you're brought up and then, you know, you're almost shut down and you must conform. Uh, there was a really interesting, I can never remember the name of it, but an influential podcast I listened to about four years ago was with an artist that I hadn't heard of at the time who was basically, I don't know who who he was really or particularly, but he basically said that um, a lot of the stuff that he does isn't really that great but he forces himself to publish something every day because showing the work for him allowed him to get over that feeling of, of anyone criticizing him or critiquing him. And um, yes, you've made a valid point as well about um, you know receiving that criticism. I've had more than a fair share of, of that. I, I put stuff up now. Look, not everything you do is going to please everybody. Um, and that's that happens to every single person in the world, whether they are the biggest film star or the biggest pop star, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who actively don't like them. And once you get over that, it kind of helps you get into a, a new place. I'm not saying you should be so arrogant to think you're amazing, um, but it doesn't really matter what other people think. They're not really thinking about you all the time. They're only thinking about you for a tiny amount of time. Um, so this notion of showing the work uh, became really significant to me. Um, I mean, obviously, I try and do everything as excellently as we, we possibly can um, so that we're not putting out um, second-rate second work. But, yeah, once I got over that that embarrassment or that, that fear, it was a real vital step for me. Mm, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And then the other point you touched on is that 
I, I think that the other misconception we have is that somehow creativity must all be quote unquote unique, like we're supposed to invent it all. But in fact, it doesn't work that way. We get inspiration from all types of sources. Some of us, uh, others, you know, one place, uh, others, others, but it, everything is an input and it's okay. In fact, that is the way it works is that we take from others and then we kind of make it our own and we express that back out in a different, maybe slightly different way. But but that is how it works. Yeah, that's deep and that's interesting. Um, and not only that, but it's completely common for more than one person to have the same idea about something. It's very frequent. It happens all the time, you know, and that's not a big deal. It's, it's great when that happens. I, I've done stuff and I've seen... Um, people having exactly the same uh, idea and doing the same thing. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point and um, very valid, yeah. Great. All right, well, I can talk about this all day, but we're going to start to wrap this up here. Uh, take a personal turn here for yourself as you think of your life and your personal life and your business life. What do you think have been some of the keys to your success? Um, I think uh, having... Um, I'm pretty open-minded, and um, and I always have a kind of open door policy. I, I, I had an encounter with someone uh, a few months ago whose email signature said, you know, had their name and their business uh, position, and it said, "If I can't help you, I probably know somebody who can. Hmm. Just ask me." And I just loved that open approach to to helping people. Um, so. Um, that's always been a really important thing for me, um, having that, that approach. I think another thing that I, I really believe is that um, it's not so much about not taking no for an answer, but you can really contact a lot more people than um, you think you can. A lot of people are scared to contact certain people because they perceive them as being too important or, or won't have enough time. But, you know, a lot of people are very generous. If you contact them in the right way with the right proposition, quite a lot of the time, you'll, you'll get quite far. Mm, great advice, great advice. What uh, do you love most about what you're doing today? Well, I love the fact that I can be working with 10 different businesses in a day, um, from a national newspaper to a broadcaster to a small one-person local business um, to a mid-scale business in, 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 in the health health components uh, world. I just love the fact that it's varied, that I can go in, find out about all these different businesses, how they work, and the types of people that I meet, um, and helping them. Um, that's what I love the most. Yeah. That's such a, a common thing I hear, that variety, that ability to learn something new every day, that new challenge. I think for us as entrepreneurs, the, the worst opposite would be if we had to go to a job where we did the exact same thing every day. That that would be death for us, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do it, but um, it would be too hard for me. Yeah. yeah. And, and by no means am I downgrading that that type of work. And, and thank goodness there are people who do that. So, But it's just for us, especially from a creative perspective, it would be quite a challenge. Um, all right, so we'll start to wrap it up. We've touched on the services that you offer. Uh, what else did we not touch on anything that uh, you're offering today to your clients through your business? Anything else that we need to mention there? No, no, you're pretty good on all of that. Yeah, we're, okay. we're basically doing the gamut of small, medium, and, and large businesses. Yeah. And then we've touched on the book. Again, it's called Viral, the Social Video Handbook. 
Um, let me ask you, who did you write that for? I wrote it for uh, people like myself who were maybe myself 10 years ago who were aspiring, who were already perhaps making videos but trying to figure out how to commercialize it. And then the second audience I wrote it for was um, corporate managers or co communications managers or marketing managers in companies who, who could learn about how to commission correctly. Um, so the both sides, both the creative people and the people who are um, commissioning work, could actually understand how how it all worked and why they were doing it, and, and maybe it would give them a, a bit of help in in doing it correctly. Okay, wonderful, fantastic. So, in addition to that book, is there a book you've read recently, or in the past, for that matter, that you would recommend to our listeners? Yes, I love uh, these questions when I listen to podcasts. Now, you mentioned earlier. Um, a quote about igniting conversation, creating alpha audiences and content shock. That, I'm not sure all of it, but certainly the notion of content shock comes from a great book about all of this, really about social media rather than pure video, called The Content Code by Mark Schaefer. I believe it's S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R. And I'm surprised that this book, which came out about two years ago, isn't a Bible of social media um, for businesses because it's such a great book. He's such a great writer. He is fairly well known, um, I think, in, in that sort of world. But um, I just try and I've given that book to a couple of people and they've really, really enjoyed it. There's so many things you can take away as to ha how content can work for you and how you can be, be creating it correctly. So, yeah, The Content Code by Mark Schaefer is uh, my tip. Fantastic. And we'll have a link to that book as well as your book on the show notes page for this Thank episode. You. Yeah. And you'll be able to find that at the howabusiness.com. All right. We'll wrap it up with these two final questions. Paul, what's the last parting piece of advice or guidance you would have for our audience? Uh, well, I think that the um, don't, take, don't take no for an answer was one. But I think here's another thing for small businesses, which is a really key thing. When you get a big, big, big piece of work and you're a small business, all of your current marketing can go out of the window. Mm. So then you can finish that big piece of work and you've got no more work to come back to because you weren't doing any marketing um, for the last however long, month or two months. You've got to have a system in place that means that your marketing machine is still working for you. Um, I think it's really important that I see a lot of small businesses failing because they don't, they don't do any marketing when they get a big job, and then suddenly they've got nothing to come back to. Yeah, great advice. It's a classic challenge and focusing on one area or the other only. Fantastic. And where would you like folks to go online to find out more about you and about your business? Well, they can uh, look at the business on our website, uh, which is handface.co.uk, and um, they can contact me on there. There's a link to my blog, which is usually updated a couple of times a week. And if they want to connect or find me on LinkedIn, I'm there under my name, Paul Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y. Wonderful. Paul, this has been a fascinating and interesting conversation. I could go on for another couple hours, which means hopefully I can maybe talk you into coming back again one day soon. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Henry, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Folks, this is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business.
Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.